If you have kids of the appropriate age, they may be dismissed for a kids club in the nursery. Currently, we are working through the book of James, and Pastor Ben has wisely, I think, called this series Portraits of Maturity. And as we're working through James bit by bit, what James is doing is he is painting different portraits of what the mature Christian life looks like. What does a mature Christian life look like? So Pastor Ben has been painting those pictures as we've gone through James. And now today, James has us in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. In a counseling context, you often hear the phrase, or I've heard the phrase, the presenting issue. The presenting issue. That is the issue that will bring an individual or a couple, or a family, into the counselor's office. So it could be financial problems. They could have maybe anxiety, or maybe it's depression. Or, as we'll see in James, it could be conflict. There could be interpersonal conflict. And because of this, they need some help. That's the issue. So they go see the counselor. And conflict is something we will all deal with, and have probably all dealt with before. And so we need to address conflict, and we must, we must address it, because it's everywhere. For instance, a few months ago when Tim and Kay Hughes were back visiting, my family and I had a chance to meet with them, and I asked them, what is the biggest reason or the biggest challenge that missionaries face on the field? And they didn't say finances, that they were under-supported. They didn't say persecution. They didn't say learning a new language. All those things are hard. But what they said is the number one challenge is interpersonal conflict among the missionaries. Missionaries just can't get along sometimes. And that's why they go back. And it's not just a problem in a different country with the missionary, but it's also an issue here. We have conflict. Well, there's conflict with your spouse, Conflict with your spouse on the way over, driving in the car. Conflict with your coworker. Conflict with the friend. Conflict with the pastoral resident at Calvary. There's conflict, a plenty. And any good counselor will also tell you that often the presenting issue isn't the real issue. Now you have the presenting issue, but underneath is where the real issue is. And I believe as we look at James, he will help us get underneath the presenting issue into what the real problem is, what the real issue is. And this will be so helpful because this will help answer questions like, don't you want to know why you and your spouse keep having the same argument over and over and over again? Or to apply it especially to today, why do some nations make war with other nations? Why are there quarrels? Why are there wars? James helps us answer this question, or questions like these. As we look at James chapter 4, here's what I want you to see, and I believe this is what James wants you to see. I believe this is what's in the text. One, I want you to see God's call on us to humility. God calls us to humility. And then I want you to see the two motivations, the two reasons 
the two factors, whatever you call it, that support that call to humility. James gives two of them. Number one is the danger of worldliness. And number two is the encouragement of grace. So those are going to be, as we'll see, two reasons or two motivations for why we pursue humility. So the call to humility and then those two motivations that James gives us. With that, I want to pray and then we'll read the passage and go into that. Father, we ask now that your word would go forth and that it would land on soft hearts and that your word would comfort those who are troubled and trouble those who are comfortable. That we would be encouraged where we should be encouraged and convicted where we should be convicted. And as you do that, we ask by your spirit that you would all the while point us back to Christ. Our sufficient and great and glorious Savior. So would you do that by the power of your Spirit? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 12. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Number one, James calls us to humility. Ultimately, it's God calling us through this passage in James. God calls us to be a humble people. What is humility? 
There are a lot of ways we can define humility. One way to define it is that a humble person is somebody who is absorbed with God, first and foremost, and secondly, they are absorbed with the needs of other people. The opposite of this would be somebody who is self-absorbed. They are absorbed with themselves and their wants and their desires. Another way to define humility is that a humble person knows his place. A humble person knows his place. And what James wants us to see is that the humble person is the person that submits to the lordship of God in every area of life, and the humble person also repents of his sin. This person submits to God's lordship and repents of his sin. We see this in verses 7 through 12. Let's start in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A humble person knows his place. Looking at verse 7, his place is not over God, but under God. The humble person submits to God. And if you submit to God, that means you're not submitting to other things, like Satan, or your own flesh, or this world. The humble person knows his place under the authority of God. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is repentance language. To be called to draw near to God implies that you are not near, that you're far away. And when we sin, our sin creates separation between us and God. And this doesn't mean for the believer that when you sin, suddenly you lose your relationship with God, or suddenly you're not a Christian anymore. But in the same way, when I sin against my wife, Kimberly, that sin creates distance between us, relational distance. And that can't be addressed and resolved until I repent of my sin, until we address the sin. And so James is calling believers, he's calling us to repent and draw near to God. And then he offers this promise, and he will draw near to you. We can repent knowing that God will draw near to us in grace, as we'll see. And so as we repent, we need to repent of not only our actions, but also of our desires. We continue on in verse 8. James says, cleanse your hands, your actions. You need to repent of your sinful actions. And then he goes on, and purify your hearts. We need to repent of our sinful desires. Then James continues the call with repentance in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Then we get to verse 10, and James, I think, summarizes what he's been talking about, which is this call. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And another promise, and he will exalt you. God will exalt the humble. And as we will see later, he opposes the proud. James continues on in verses 11 and 12, reiterating on the topic of lordship, that the humble person submits to the lordship of God. And as we'll see in these verses, James is saying that when we speak evil about another believer or speak ill of that believer, we're actually putting ourselves in the place of God. 
We're taking on ourselves prerogatives that only God can have and only God can do. And so what might this evil speaking look like? It might look like this. You might say, can you believe that so-and-so is still wearing a mask? They're living in fear. It might also look like this. Can you believe that so-and-so is not wearing a mask? They don't love their neighbor. They want people to die. In each case, instead of obeying God and his law, we are judging God's law. James is calling us to be doers of the law. And we saw back in James 1, if you've been paying attention to the series, that God calls us to be slow to speak and quick to listen. So if this is an issue that really matters to you, then I would encourage you, talk to that person, but talk very little and do a lot of listening. Ask questions. But we are not doing the law if we make those snap judgments about people. Obeying the law looks like being slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. So verse 11 through 12, here's what James says. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So we've covered a lot of ground pretty quickly. And I imagine for some of you that might feel very abstract. So let's make this a little more concrete. What does humility look like in somebody? C.S. Lewis helps us out here. He has this wonderful description of what a humble person is like. Here's what Lewis writes. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility is not inward-focused. It's not self-absorbed. Now, I imagine some of you would love if I gave you 10 steps to be a more humble person. But I don't have that program. I don't have that solution or that magic bullet. And I don't think you'll find it in Scripture either. There isn't some magic solution. But Lewis can help us here as well. I do know the first step. Lewis goes on to say that the first step to being a really humble person is by admitting that you're not. By admitting that we are all prideful. Every single one of you. The person that thinks he's not prideful is most certainly prideful. And so we need to admit that we're prideful. What this might look like is it might look like what we see in Luke chapter 18. 
the tax collector that Jesus tells us about in this parable. In Luke 18, verse 9 through 14, we read this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's God's call on us to humility. And now as we pivot into looking at those two motivations, I want to pause a little bit so you can see where this is coming from. Because I want you to see that I'm not just making this up. This is in the passage. James gives us these two motivations. And so I want us to look at verse 7 very carefully. Let's look at verse 7. James writes, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Every time you read your Bible and you read the word therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. And all that does is it tells us that James is drawing a conclusion. In other words, in light of verses 1 through 6, which is what we're about to look at, James is building on that. Verses 1 to 6, this is what James is telling us, give the undergirding, the support, the motivation, the reasons for that call to humility. Verses 1 through 6 give us the foundation that James builds on. And so this is right here in the passage. God put the word therefore in here for us to see that these two reasons that we're about to look at should motivate and undergird and support the call to humility. So what are those reasons? Well, as we'll see, one is the danger of worldliness and the other is the encouragement of God's grace. So first, worldliness. We see this in verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, what we'll see is that James has a big warning sign. Some of you probably have cleaning chemicals at home, and usually somewhere on the back it'll say, Warning! Never ever drink this. It's bad. It's a warning. And so James is trying to warn us. He's saying, Danger! Worldliness is dangerous. And what James is getting at, as we'll see, is that conflict is just a symptom of an underlying worldliness, of worldly desires. That worldliness, unlike humility, is inward-focused. It's about you and what you want and what you can get. That's worldliness. And so we look at verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. James is warning against worldliness. Worldliness is when we take pleasure in the anti-God culture that permeates this fallen world. Worldliness is when we take pleasure in the anti-God culture that permeates all of this fallen world. And James is warning his people And I am warning you and myself about the dangers of of worldliness. If you've studied James before, if you've paid attention, this is the one place where James doesn't call his audience brothers. He doesn't call them beloved. What does he call them? That's right, verse 4. You adulterous people. He uses strong, serious language. He uses the imagery of unfaithfulness. That worldliness is so serious and weighty, and he's warning his people about it. One pastor put it this way, Worldliness is so dangerous because Christ is so glorious. And so this is a danger that if you flirt with worldliness, you will have conflict with other people, and you will have enmity with God. And so I want to warn us as well that worldliness is a cruel mistress. You will find no grace. You will find no forgiveness. You will find no mercy. Now, where does conflict come from? It comes from our worldly, sinful, selfish desires. Conflict begins with me and my wife when she denies my worldly, selfish desires. Conflict begins when someone, whoever it might be, denies your worldly, sinful, selfish desires. That's where conflict comes from. Now, before we move on, I need to qualify something here because this could be misunderstood. You might think, oh, well, does that mean then that if I never have conflict, that's a sign of how faithful I am to God? Not necessarily. Jesus had lots of conflict, didn't he? And he was most definitely not worldly. So what James is saying is that one of the reasons we often have conflict is from our worldly sinful desires. That's not the only reason. So it could be a mistake to think that, well, this conflict must be because of my sinful worldly desires. Often it is. And what I want you to do then is when you are in conflict, when you're aware of conflict, let it be a time to step back and just do a diagnosis and ask, why is this conflict going on? What do I want in this? Is it coming from worldly sinful desires? If it is, then you need to repent of those desires. But sometimes we will have conflict and trouble, not because of that, but because we did do the right thing. 
That was often the case with Jesus. But I just say that now so I've not misunderstood. But that really isn't James's point. His point is to show us that often one of the reasons we have conflict is because of our worldly desires. So we need to be asking underneath that conflict, what is it that I want? Often that reveals those worldly sinful desires. Now at this point, I would imagine that there are many of you right now who feel very discouraged. Because after reading that beautiful description about humility, you probably all thought, that's amazing. And I've never met anybody like that, not even you. And that's right, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm not humble, I'm very prideful. And that description can be paralyzing. And it can also be paralyzing when you hear about the danger of worldliness because it's everywhere. And then I say all that because I don't want us to forget the final motivation that James gives. And it's only in one verse, but let's look at that final motivation, which is the encouragement of God's grace. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is greater than any worldly, sinful desire you might have in your heart. His grace is greater than any conflict you might be going through. His grace is more than enough. His grace can do it. So God, Calvary, for us, Calvary, we should be humble people because God gives grace to the humble. And because worldliness is so dangerous. How can God give us this grace and keep giving it and giving it and giving it and giving it? It's because of the cross. Because on the cross was the one time God opposed somebody who was humble. On the cross, God poured out his wrath on the only humble person, Jesus Christ. On the cross, God opposed the one person who, when he asked God for something, he didn't ask to spend it on his passions. He asked that God's will would be done. On the cross, God opposed the one person who submitted his life perfectly and completely to God. And it's on the cross where God draws near, he draws near to Jesus, not in grace, but in wrath. And he did that for you and for me. It was an incredible price, a price we could never pay back, something we could never earn, something we could never write a thank you note for. The point is, we could never do it. Jesus paid the price, an incredible price for you and me. And it's that costly grace that will make us humble people. It's that grace that will change us. I've been recently reading the book Pilgrim's Progress. And in that book, there's a scene where Apollyon, this demon, is fighting with Christian, the main character. And Apollyon tries to discourage Christian by reminding him of every time he failed, every time he blew it. But Christian responds, and I think Christian responds by tapping into what we've been talking about. And so I want to read how Christian responds to Apollyon. Christian says, in the face of all these accusations, which are true, he says, all this is true, and much more which thou hast left out. 
But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in thy country. For there I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and have obtained a pardon of my prince. That's what we have, Calvary, in Christ. We have a prince, Jesus Christ, who is merciful and ready to forgive. So Calvary, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you in grace. Let's pray. Yahweh, you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Would you remind us of your costly grace? And would you also remind us of the danger of worldliness so that we might be a people a little less prideful and a little more humble and a little more joyful in Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen.